Welcome to the Out of the Woods Podcast. The top five headlines threat hunters need to be thinking of this week. Hey everyone, welcome to another edition of the Out of the Woods Threat Hunting Podcast. This is Scott Poley here with Lee Arkinall. Hey everyone, welcome back. And this weekly segment features the top five stories that threat hunters need to be thinking about, as well as our thoughts on the subject and hunting strategies. So with that, let's dive into the top five threat hunting headlines for the week of September 25th, 2023. So Lee, I was going to kick off with, it's kind of a massive article because they broke it up into three different parts that all kind of have their own place, their own site. Um, But it's uh, from Palo Alto, their Unit 42 group. They usually do really good reporting in general. Um, and it's called the Persistent Attempts of Cyber Espionage Against Southeast Asian Government Targets. Um, that has links to Aloy Taurus. So obviously it's a, a Chinese actor. Um, I don't know how they convert to the, the common actor names other people are familiar with. Um, I didn't dig into that yet. Um, but, you know, I was trying to dig through all the reports that were associated. And um, you know, it's kind of interesting, right? Uh, the way they describe a lot of the chaining and what they provide as far as details. The screenshots are great. Um, but some of the things that stood out to me as far as the behaviors that were occurring um, was the command exe to command exe chaining. So I see this a lot, uh, especially when um, actors try to do different types of execution and they're not cognizant of like the most efficient way to execute. So sometimes you'll have where CMD execute CMD, which can execute something else. Uh, and I think it's a good thing to kind of look for that activity because it's not too common, um, I wouldn't think, for users to be basically trying to execute the same thing before doing what they want. So that was something that uh, stood out. Something else that they actually leveraged um, as well in the attack was they did a lot of... Um, uh, they did some aliasing for PowerShell, uh, and it was great because their uh, their invoke um, execution uh, they changed the the alias for that to Kapersky, which I thought was interesting because some of the reporting on them was done by Kapersky, so I didn't know if that was just a, a callback to them or they knew that their targets were running that AV or endpoint solution, uh, whatever it's considered to try to duck or evade some of the detections uh, or, you know, human eyes kind of on for, for that weird behavior that might alert. Uh, way, and then, you know, that's pretty clever. Think about like, if you're threat hunting and going through it, looking for weird processes, you say, I know Kaspersky's running in my environment. Yep. Exclude, I mean, exclude right. that on my list. Yeah. So, yeah, that was interesting. And then the other thing they updated or added a lot of registry values to the LSA, um, which is basically... Uh, it's the Windows service that controls like the NTLM off stuff. Um, yeah, the NT LAN manager, which basically is the older authentication protocol, but it, these are the registry keys to control like what version you might use, if you use it at all. Um, but they, they modified three different keys. One was the restrict sending NTLM traffic, which um, by default allows all. Um, or you can deny all or deny for domain accounts. So they basically are allowing the use of uh, NTLM authentication. Uh, and then they modified the NTLM min client sec, which is uh, it's used to control the client side NTLM security settings uh, by specifying the minimum level, but it's a bit field um, value. So that means there's every bit has like a different flag for how things might be implemented. So for instance, it might be 128-bit encryption as well as NTLM v2 or you know, so forth. So um, they obviously had specific settings they wanted set for that. And then they had a compati- the incompatibility level uh, key, which uh, basically determines what kind of responses or what kind of things they leveraged. Um, and they basically uh, said use NTLM v2. So that might be hard setting some of these keys because they use a lot of things to capture credentials and so forth. So that might be why they're trying to control the environment for some of those things. Um, and then what was really interesting in digging through the multiple different kind of uh, 
I guess, articles associated with this one master article was the their leverage of constantly trying to tunnel RT, RDP sessions through SSH tunnels or tunnels in general. They tried a, a series of different tools, um, which I thought were really interesting. And apparently they weren't successful in a few of them. Like they even tried to use Putty, for instance, to tunnel through. Um, and then they even uh, implemented using a tunneling tool called Earthworm. And then they uh, moved PowerCat, which is, if you're familiar with NetCat on the Linux systems, which is a common tool that's, you take any offensive anything, it's like one of the first things you learn for kind of reverse shell. But PowerCat is that implementation in PowerShell. Uh, so there was a, a, a lot of, um, I guess, strenuous effort in doing those things. And what was really interesting too, the very top of the article, I didn't mention this, I meant to call this out first, was they covered multiple waves of the attack. And what was really interesting is not all capabilities repeated from wave to wave. Um, they all started with web shells and they all used reconnaissance, but they didn't use, you know, F scan sometimes or MBT scan, or, you know, they sometimes use proc dump and other times they did not. Uh, so, you know, I don't know if that's to kind of keep a moving target or they just kind of have these different capabilities depending on where they landed or, you know, they, what they orchestrated, what they're going to try to do. So. Um, that was also kind of an interesting insight as far as just looking at the behavior and what's consistent and what's not. Um, I liked that uh, breakout. And then another thing I, I've, I've called it out before, um, and that is they did leverage where they had payloads that were just single character named. And I don't know why it's consistent, but I feel like if you have any kind of detection or any type of hunting strategy where you're looking for single character named uh, scripts or executables, uh, you you can stumble across some of these, I would say, more persistent or advanced adversaries that seem to kind of pop up this way. Um, they're really, really good at naming their things to blend in with the environment, or they're really, really good at just being lazy. Uh, so it's just kind of interesting dichotomy there. Uh, but um, something else to note, they were taking advantage of uh, basically controlling uh, infrastructure uh, to host their C2 within the country that they were targeting. So easier to blend in. And you'll kind of see that as some of the things I go through, I kind of picked up on a lot of the articles and stuff I picked up on uh, to talk about. That was a common trend. So that was kind of interesting because a lot of times we, we uh, as, you know, people use geoblocking or things like that to basically get rid of noise or help make these adversaries work harder. It sounds like that's becoming a standard practice now to, try to compromise infrastructure uh, within the region that you are attacking to leverage um, for that type of communication. So definitely worth checking out. There's a lot of pieces I did not cover, but I wanted to pick up some of the highlights that I think make it easier to uh, identify or interesting insight to look into. Um, but yeah, when you uh, took a glance, what do you think or see? So I think I'm glad you didn't describe it all three of these, because I think that would be its own episode, um, which Right. Might not be a bad thing. I'm sure the the listeners would appreciate uh, the insight. Um, maybe we should have like Poli's article hour or something. <laughs> Either way, what I was shocked about um, these articles going through like, and I'm not one to say what separates advanced persistence threats or sophisticated adversaries from script kitties or just you know cyber crime groups that are just, you know, trying to smash and grab. Mm -hmm. What I was shocked about, though, was the use of open source tools in all of these. Oh, yeah. So, which, in my mind, it, it, it just provides us leverage and documentation on Defender's Ed that once we start seeing these tools pop open and or make you know the big articles, we can now go back and take a look at what they're dealing with, take a look at what it looks like, and provide better um, hunts for these tools. I mean, and also what I was shocked was the amount of tools that were created or used in the attacks. Like um, reading this. Just a breakout of the um, rare backdoors suspected to be tied to 
Gelsemium APT found article, there was like a different tool for some like each step of the stage of the attack. No, sometimes you know you have that modular framework that's dropped, um, or someone drops a piece of malware that is just able to do everything at once. Right. right. These guys used uh, the Regeorge, China Chopper, and the ASPX by web shells. So they have a bunch of those. Um, they use the Session Manager to be the backdoor to upload and download files from a server. Um, they used Alproxy. Cobalt Strike was involved. You mentioned Earthworm. Then there was the Spoolful, Juicy Potato, Bad Potato, and Sweet Potato. All these tools for privilege escalation. I just think it's surprising to me that in the day and age of security uh, security products that we're still seeing these tools be used and be successful. Um, not that I'm saying that, you know, the adversary may have gotten in and the first thing they did is drop the defenses of the organization there. If they mm-hmm. did that, then yes, that's understandable of why that's like that. Um, but what it really, what I really took away from this was all I see is open source tool after tool after tool after tool. At some point, if detections are firing, then this is where the threat hunting process really shines, right? Right, absolutely. If you are proactively going through here and you are applying a hypothesis lens towards it when where you're just looking for anomalous activity versus, um, you know, I'm looking for a specific malware, then you may have you may be able to find um, find these artifacts earlier and possibly prevent the attack. Um, and finally, it talks about how this um, APT was like uh, it hasn't been seen in for a while, and it's you know it stays uh, below the radar and stuff. And may and maybe and I'm not uh, a CTI analyst. I'll, I'll never claim to play that game of attribution. Um, but maybe the fact that they are using all these different tools and these open source frameworks and just pulling things off the internet instead of creating their own stuff, maybe that's how they stay under the radar. That maybe yeah, by just right. Yeah. So I mean, if you keep using what's out there, then no one can really say it was this was created by you know by this APT and you know whatever. Uh, but it was there were three very good articles. Um, very well written, very technical, and uh, thanks for bringing those to my attention. Yeah, so you bring up two good points that I like. One was you talked about the attribution, and they have a great visual graph in one of the articles, and it's the one that double dubs the researchers discover multiple espionage operations. Um, and in that, they used Maltigo and all the different compromised endpoints and activity and try to stitch them all together. And then they were able to see where one environment entered another environment or connected to two different environments. And that's how they're able to associate all these behaviors that they picked up together, which, you know, is a, is a smart way to just take, here's all the data we have. How is it related? Uh, you know, you almost assess with graph databases, similar process. Um, and then uh, the use of like the open source stuff. So I always feel like if you, you know, have a, a mature enough or enough resources in a security operation, that should be this part of your training slash capability to be able to, every time you find a new tool that's just open source and it's an offensive tool, you should try to use it in a, in a lab-like environment that collects not so much your EDR type stuff to see if it detects it right out of the gate, but what kind of data gets generated that you potentially log or could log. Um, because that really helps you understand also how things potentially work. And, you know, it's very common for adversaries to use open source tooling, but it's also common for them to steal techniques from open source tooling and kind of roll them into their own stuff. So it, you get a lot more traction, even if you are looking at, you know, specific tools that you're like, well, those are all open source. You know, those aren't what we're really worried about. You know, it's like, well, it, it would mature you a lot faster if you were able to handle all those. So, so yeah. You know, I saw that, um, I saw that exact image of what you were talking about. And of course I thought of you. Um, <laughs> I was going to ask maybe, you know, did you plan on recreating something like this on your own? I what know how you love this. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that's all I got on that. What uh, what do you have? You're gonna 
bring to the table? Our favorite time. <laughs> it's always a good Monday when you can start off with a DFA report. Yeah. So, things that stayed the same. I could probably, I'm not going to outline this. Um, I would love to, but once again, that would be the poly article hour. Um, but what we see is the normal discovery activity, right? Once the adversary lands in there, they got to figure out what they're looking at, what they're dealing with. We see uh, C2, or we see persistence, which is gained through a service, uh, creation of a service, which I think a lot of the times it's registry key. So that kind of stood out. But persistence is, you know, always getting persistent, always trying to gain persistence. But this time it was through a service that was created to run on auto start. Um, we saw process injection. Always trying, uh, adversaries use this for um, defense evasion. Um, we saw LSAS dumping for credential access. Um, uh, we saw Mimikatz. We saw Cobalt Strike. Um, and I'm just, sorry, I'm just highlighting these because these are the things that are very common and very, um, we see them time and time again in um, not, o- not only the DFA report, but in articles. Because these are the kind of things and these the, the techniques and behaviors that adversaries, they're trying to achieve their goals by gaining persistence, by gaining defense evasion. You know, how can they avoid from being, or by, or how can they avoid getting caught? How can they maintain access to your computer? Uh, so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so these things are the, you know, the constants. Um, exfiltration was u- uh, using our clone again, which we've seen in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm not here to talk about all that. I'm here to talk about some things that I saw that were actually really interesting um, in this article. Um, there is a couple misses and there's some new... Uh, um, software added to my list. So, first off, Screen Connect and the Aterra agent were used. Um, which so Screen Connect and uh, Aterra agents are they fall under the Remote Monitoring and Management software. Now, if you're not uh, familiar with that term, if you think about TeamViewer, if you think about AnyDesk, they are software that is designed that you can remotely connect to a computer. And it's meant for administrations. You could also call it a remote admin tool or uh, like a legitimate rack. Um, but these tools are designed so that you can connect to a machine and treat the remote machine like it is exactly yours. You can see the desktop. You can see, or it's you know, it's got a full desktop view. You can navigate the directories, navigate the files, run executables, run commands, you name it. It's basically treating it like it's your computer. Now, the first thing I looked up when I heard Screen Connect what, and ATR was that, hey, you know, I, we've discussed this in the past. Why is it being used? And I looked up, and they both have free trials. Now, I know, Polly, you brought this up a while ago. You know, are they only using these for the free trial periods? Um, is, you know... I, I was. I don't think I was able to determine if that was the case or not. But these pieces of software do offer free trials, so there might be a limited window that the threat actor or adversary could use. Do you use. know the free trial length when you looked at it real quick? Did they? Did you see like a capture of like thirty days or fifteen days? I or something did like? not. I did okay. not. No worries. I just uh, noticed that this, the article says sixty-one hours, so I, I was wondering if it was that was within the window. Well, Screen Connect is fourteen days. Okay. And Aterra, I don't know. Okay, that's a big pop-up blocking my view. Um, but so yes, so I mean technically I guess it would, but it's just interesting. Or did they just get a cracked version? Mm. Or possibly did they steal a legitimate version? Who knows? Um, but I thought that was interesting because that's, that's I always abuse TeamViewer and AnyDesk and trainings that I do and the workshops that we do, simply because they constantly show up. But now I have two new two new uh, pieces of software there. There was also. Um, I think they called it a miss or a mistake that whenever um, they were running the MSI ex- executable to install um, Screen Connect, they used the MSI or MSI Windows installer file or .msi. And the command line it ran was missing the slash Q parameter. Now, the reason I say it's missing is normally if an adversary is trying to hide something, uh, this is basically 
where slash Q is basically the equivalent of typing slash or dash hidden in PowerShell or whenever you do a window or a PowerShell um, windows, right? You don't want, if you're trying to do something malicious and not be seen, you're going to use the slash Q or the dash hidden so that nothing pops up that the that the user that could be sitting at their desk can see. Well, they it mentioned that this... For quiet. Right. So it was like, yeah, you know, why did that not happen? So they were able to see it. Um, the user may have been able to see it, and they were able to see it during the uh, sandbox execution, um, which I thought was interesting. Now, um, you know, why did you know why did they miss this? Um, also, if you look at the log file that they uh, provided, it's uh, it's MSI executable was running from the SysWow64 directory. Now we talk about this all the time. Um, it's that's not a miss. That's not nothing. No, that's not anything new. But I just would like to bring it to attention because that that tells me this is 32-bit. Um, mm-hmm. So once again, they are creating a 32-bit version so that they can hit both the 64-bit Windows and 32-bit Windows because 64-bit has a backwards compatibility uh, feature or function built into it. Now I'm just you know that is always interesting to me. You throw in system uh, syswile64, see what pops up. Is that expecting your environment? Also, the Cobalt Strike payload can be extracted from network communications, and in this case, um, I'm pretty sure they're using Wireshark because they were using HTTP and not HTTPS or a- any other uh, mm-hmm. form of secure communication, which now. I don't want to, don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to point fingers and laugh at this adversary. They may have been dealing or using what they had available to them, but it just seems like this wasn't well thought out. Well, they didn't have the infrastructure set up to support, you know, the better way of doing it, right? It's definitely true. It's definitely true, right? There is something preventing them from using secured traffic, but at what cost? You know, do you... I don't know. I, I, as I was reading this, I was asking myself, like, if I was an adversary, would I want to go through this or through with this if that was the case? If I knew that they could read everything? I don't know. Uh, maybe they were desperate. Maybe they just had a limited time window because, you know, it was 61 hours. Um. Also... A reverse shell was dropped, and it was believed to be a PowerFun module that was part of the Metasploit framework. And the reason they think that is because it was configured to use the default port of Metasploit, which is four or port four 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 four, and you can find that number throughout uh, the indicators in the report. Uh, so it was using TCP port 4444, which uh, if you've ever messed with Metasploit, that as you're configuring the modules and the options, that is whenever you hit, or if you just say, I want to use this exploit or this module, and then you hit option or type options, hit, hit enter, and it shows you what it's configured for. Port or listening port 4444 is always the default one, no matter what. Um, so once again, it, this kind of tells me that or, or makes me question what's going on here. Is this a script kitty ransomware group? Because that you know that was the goal. Um, I don't know. Um, but once again, I'm not going to play that game. Um, and finally, it uh, it looked like they were trying to evade detection by deleting their logs, um, which can be de- uh, discovered. That or that activity can be discovered through Sysmon Event Code 23, and it shows that they're trying to delete the artifacts that were dropped, including um, the initial executable that was um, used for initial access, which was a document, and it was randomly named. Um, I believe it was like um, where's that at? Document eight six or something. Um, but it just shows that they were trying to manually do it versus automating it 
through a batch script or through, um, no, sorry, it was document 8765.exe. I don't know, another sad attempt? Or just keyboard mashing? I don't know. It, this, just, this all just seemed very interesting. It was a very, very good report. I would give this attack a 3 out of 10? Yeah, they, didn't push, they, they were successful, but it was interesting that they didn't care a lot to, like, avoid a lot of those things that a lot of adversaries may fall into to get caught, which was also interesting when you think of, like, the environment they hit. You know, what what was set up to even monitor or detect for things in general? Yeah, very true. Um, I, I may be sitting here throwing shade, but they may realize, or they may have realized once they got into the environment that they don't need to do anything. It, it could absolutely be that. Um, but even the in the report, there is a, a quote that says um, that this ended in a with a somewhat botched Hive ransomware deployment. Mm-hmm. Um, very good DFA report as usual. Just an interesting, interesting um, artifact, though I guess. So now I threw out there what stood out to you. Yeah, so there are a couple of things. Obviously, you know, looking at the Screen Connect and the Terra, and then, you know, when you see the service installed, so it, you know, auto starts those services, it's kind of another way where you can kind of get higher level permissions because the, those would now be running as services. Um, so it kind of helps with some of that. The other was the use of PowerShell. They had two different um, ways they pulled down. Uh, one was a cobalt strike beacon and the other was another type of payload i forgot what it was but they use bit transfer but the version through powershell so they uh, because the module for bits admin wasn't uh loaded they also did a bits you know uh imported the bits module first and then used the bits transfer but it was a direct call out to an ip so that's always interesting because you can see that from you know command line logging or you can see that from the user agent for bits admin and then you see a direct IP uh you know call it's it's uh, interesting to find that um and then also the the standard you know system.net web client um dot download file and then also had a direct IP call it as well so that one you can you know definitely catch from command line and that's not your typical behavior uh by any means and then uh the other thing that I thought was interesting um and I never really pay attention to these things, but since they called it out, I kind of was just, you know, thinking about it. You know, we talked about how they kind of were just, in a way, stumbling through the environment, so to speak. Um, and they had a encoded PowerShell script, which, you know, it's pretty easy to identify encoded PowerShell scripting. It's usually base64 encoded, and it's got the right flags, uh, the dash E at least. And apparently whatever they ran that was encoded uh, uh, crashed. And you can see in their oh, screenshot that the process ID for that PowerShell was 892. And then there were four wherefault.exe, which is basically the process that if there is, um, I forgot what uh, data collection is set up, but basically if programs are configured to where if they crash, they are able to dump that data so they could be, you know, shovel shot later. Um, they usually have hooks into Wherefault, and then that's what Wherefault will fire and collect that information. So basically PowerShell process 892 crashed, and you can see following that for Wherefault.exe crashes with the dash P, which uh, refers to the process ID that's crashing, that's 892. So you can see it's directly related to that. And then you see about 10 minutes later, um, PowerShell another PowerShell encoder command where they must have fixed whatever it was that was causing the crash and then re-executed that. Um, so that was just interesting to see. Uh, and I've never really tried to use Wherefall to look for, you know, suspicious behavior before. And I don't know what that would really take because I, I know I've looked at Wherefall in general and I know it kind of fires, you know, periodically from just natural system stuff that just passes data that way. But it was just interesting to see how they picked up on that, which was kind of cool. Um, but yeah, those are like the, some of the, the main things that kind of stood out to me, uh, minus the stuff that you've already mentioned. So 
uh always a great write-up it's always worth kind of digging through and looking through there's there's every time i like i feel if i were to scan over this multiple times i'd pick up on something new and be like oh that's interesting so um <laughs> I, I do recommend reading these things multiple times um one thing i also forgot to mention was they actually called out a link to the CISA uh, or a um, the CISA adversary that they put out. Um, and sorry, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency or CISA um, put out a warning about remote monitoring and management software because it is becoming so pre- uh, prevalent. Um, mm-hmm. In 2022, they pushed this out because of the increase in usage. So just a reminder that this, I mean, that was two years ago no one year ago um possibly longer but the idea is that they can adversaries will use the same things over and over if it's still working so heads up yeah so something else i forgot to mention too um and this is just kind of interesting <laughs> when it comes to uh forensics if you if you're not familiar with shell bags um they're basically uh stuff that's stored in the registry that's allows you to see the last interaction of things like manual interaction so sometimes it's really useful if you know an adversary has got hands-on keyboard especially if it's graphical or if you're just you know having to investigate internal people and what may have happened and how things unfolded but eric zimmerman's got a lot of great tools to help do forensic analysis and he's got a shell bags explorer which makes it very easy to look at this but it'll basically show you what directories and what things were interacted with and touched in a sequential, timely manner. Um, so kind of a cool, you know, anecdotal thing to be aware of, add to your tool set or be familiar with what data actually exists there. So, yep, that's all I got there. And with that, I think we can officially call this article closed. <laughs> so what's next? Yes. So the next one is a checkpoint uh, article from their team, research team, and it's called Behind the Scenes of BB Talk. Um, analyzing a banker's server side components. Um, so basically, it's malware that you know I, I believe targets like kind of like a, a banker Trojan kind of thing. Um, but what was interesting was this is also targeting a specific part of the world, you know, Mexico or Brazil, and they specifically look for that um, in the malware uh, when they hit when the when you hit the server that you get fish to go click on and go to their server. Their server will do like a lookup real quick on the, on your IP address stuff to make sure that you're the right target. And then also we'll do enumeration based on your user agent that connected to them to determine if you're Windows 7 or Windows 10. Um, so, you know, kind of basic but interesting. But what was interesting um, was depending on the OS it would determine that it's going to drop an ISO or a zip file with a, a shortcut link, an LNK file inside. So if you're a Windows 7, you got a zip file, and when you open up the LNK, you would basically get, the, uh, it opens a PDF file and executes run, run DLL32. And so this behavior I think is interesting because I've seen a lot now where when you open LNK files, you'll see PDFs, always open as just the decoy file because that's what you think you're actually opening. And that's to prevent anyone from being alarmed that something else is happening as well or that something didn't work, so then it becomes suspicious. Um, so, you know, a lot of times we try to bucket activity together. Uh, it might be interesting to see uh, if um, a PDF and something else executes within the same time frame and in a tight window there. Um, from the same parent and things like that, because you might be able to uh, look for signs of execution to help discover some of these things. Um, and then the other thing, um, and then also if if you see run DLL32 uh, executing and running a DLL not located in the systems folder, right? So if, you, if you're able to build logic based on that, on the location of the DLL, uh, that can also be very telling, right? So yeah, the PDF... Uh, running tandem with uh, run DLL32, and then you don't have any of the, like the system32, sysfile64, all that kind of stuff, um, or program files running at the same time. Um, and then the other thing is, if you're the Windows uh, 10, they took advantage of the ISOs because those run natively. 
the same idea except for the execution chain was a little different. Um, basically, it runs a renamed CMD, so the CMD AXE command prompt, um, and that then opens a PDF and runs MS build. So those two things run simultaneously, and MS build actually connects and downloads an XML file that then creates a DLL that then runs you know DLL 32. So much longer execution chain. Um, but once again, you're kind of looking for, hey, if you've got a PDF opening and these other types of behavior, so to speak, you might be able to kind of drill in that when you start looking at time windows and same machines, same users and things. So something to take note of. Um, and then it was also an interesting article because they called out some earlier versions and how they operated. So they still use the LNK, but they're running PowerShell straight from the LNK, the shortcut link. Um, and, and, and some other things, um, that we've talked about before. So it's interesting to kind of see how things mature over time and some techniques that some adversaries take. Um, but yeah, so it was just an interesting, uh, article to see how the basic activity is when, you know, you connect to a malicious server and how it basically offers up different things for it to be run and executed. So, so yeah. What are your thoughts? I thought it was interesting. Um, you caught out the logic used um, for the ISO and zip files. Um, if you keep keep scrolling down, I'm sure you noticed it, but yeah, there's so many technical details in here. But yeah. they've also used a naming convention. So they were looking at if the country is Brazilian or the country code is Brazilian, it would name the DLL name Trammy. And if mm -hmm. not, it was Gammy, which would uh, Gammy would be the one used for um, Mexico. Now, one thing that I read in this whole article, and really what just stuck out, was that it mentioned, and this goes back to, I, I keep, I'm trying not to sit here and say, we're right, or you should do what we're doing, but it mentioned abuse of living off land binaries. And it even says that this resulted in low detection rates, right. even though BB or the BB Talk Banker uh, has been operating since 2020. Now, I don't mean to beat a dead horse, but once again, if you have the time, effort, resources um, to start going through Intel or the Meyer Tech framework or whatever the case, however you want to start, if you start threat hunting, and looking for weird, anomalous, strange activity coming from, I mean, even start with the living off the land binaries that you can think of. Look for PowerShell, look for services, look for registry editor, you know, you name it. But if you have extra time, start looking through your environment, seeing how these, these basic living off the land binaries are being used, and then see if you can find something different. Right, that one different thing could be all you need to justify. Hey, we should start threat hunting more, or dedicate a team to this, or dedicate hours to this versus just free time. Um, but if even if you don't find something malicious, what you're doing while you're threat hunting is learning your environment. You're getting that tribal knowledge that takes years, um, or you know, normally takes years to learn, and normally that was learned from. Uh, alerts and detections that you would respond to. Now, if those, you know, if you don't have alerts or detections built around your environment, or you do and they're not triggering, how are you supposed to learn that tribal knowledge? Um, and I, the answer is threat hunting. If you can start diving into your data with a mindset of we're just looking for things and you are supported by your management, which is most important. Um, then I think good things will happen and we might force the adversaries to change their behaviors and techniques um, and hopefully stall or at least maybe stop them, making them rethink who they're going to come after. I don't know. That's wishful thinking, but this article, once again, just shines a light on um, why threat hunting is needed. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So what do you got next? Next up, 
is an article from We Live Security uh, by ESET, and it is titled "Stealth Falcon Praying Over Middle Eastern Skies with Dead Glyph." Not uh, Dead Glyph. Sorry. Um, now this is quite the read. It's very technical. Mm-hmm. Um, or I guess it's more of a technical article versus uh, overview or whatever. But what was really um, what really stuck out was the way that the dead glyph backdoor was designed. Um, it was it consists of multiple components. Um, it includes registry shell shellcode loader. Um, it includes um, what they call the orchestrator, and I believe the executor. Um, so they have these different pieces, right? Um, and how they've done it is basically that the orchestrator is the one that will like run the commands, um, while the executor um, loads configurations and kind of sets up as a resource for the orchestrator. Um, so this is... And i probably describing this wrong, but it seems like you have your C2 communication that comes to the executor and that goes to the orchestrator. It seems like the executor is acting kind of like a middleman, right? So instead of receiving everything directly, it, it processes everything and then the orchestrator comes to the executor and says, what do I need to do? And the executor says, here you go. I could be getting that wrong, but that was like the first... Um, impression that I got as I read through this uh, article. Now, what really stuck out to me, and um, I'm going to keep this short, <laughs> but the, com- the way the communication runs, um, it has two modules, or the orchestrator utilizes two modules for C and C or C2 communication. And they're, na- they're the timer and the network. What's really interesting or cool to me is that it has a um a self uninstallation mechanism that can be triggered so if it can't communicate with the c2 server over a certain amount of time or um they can't connect to the network it just kills itself and gets rid of itself which i find fascinating because the threat actor um I think the article even says this has a, a two-fold effect. One, it stops, um, of course, defense evasion, right? If it removes itself, then you possibly may not be able to find um, the actual activity. And two, by creating this, um, or by having the timer module and being able to configure it, you now prevent like a possible DDoS on yourself, right? So it's not just constantly like, here I am, here I am, here I am, every single minute, right? And then all of a sudden, whenever it does make a connection, you get all these, hey, here I am kind of things, right? Um, but I, I found that fascinating. And well, I look, the timer log, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, I look at that as, you know, what's one of the first actions defenders take when they think there's a compromised machine? And that's take the machine off the network, but we've learned not to power it off or do anything else. So you break network connectivity then it assumes you're onto it, so it deletes itself. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, And then the timer module is configurable to create, like, um, inconsistent communication. Um, Basically, so it's not set at the same, like, it doesn't beacon out at the same time. you know, in, it was analyzed, and they said the interval was set to five minutes with a plus 20% variation introduced for randomness. Um, mm-hmm. But the fact that you can create that, and it's not just a hard set, here you go, um, it'll actually, uh, once again, attempt to confuse the analysts um, as it's working through. Um, so, you know, maybe it will look like normal conf- a normal configuration, or maybe it'll look like normal intervals, and then eventually, someone will just ignore it, and they will continue down the road. Um, but those were the those were the highlights that I found um, in this article because I just I found it fascinating how it was configured, how it had multiple moving parts, 
how it wasn't just a straight C2 server to malware communication relationship. Um, and like I said, there's two modules. Um, now, I'm sure there's a million things that you picked up, so let's hear them. Yeah, so I was impressed that this adversary um, had a very good understanding of like older implementations of using like Windows management because everything they did was heavy on WMI. Now, there's two good reasons for this. One, a lot of people don't monitor WMI activity as much, but also um, it is a little more complicated if you don't have the knowledge just to pick up and start running and doing everything WMI. So it says the maturity about some of the adversary and just their understanding of you know how WMI is effective in attacks because they're backdoor was actually set up through WMI as a WMI event subscription. So I have seen, um, I think Mandiant had a really cool report where, hey, if you want to monitor some WMI activity, you can create your own subscription in WMI so that every time someone uses it, you generate logs for it um, for certain activities, which I thought was cool. So, you know, you pretty much create like a trigger and event subscription um, with WMI for anything. Um, and they're very familiar with that, apparently, with this malware. And they, it's, the complexity is in how they leverage it and utilize it. It was really cool. But to monitor for these types of things, there's three main event IDs to look for. There's uh, event ID 5860, which is indicates a new WMI event filter has been registered. Uh, then there's ID 5861, which indicates the new WMI event consumer has been registered. So you get a consumer that consumes, you know, the events that get, you know, filtered in. And then the 5862, that's when you're binding between the event filter and the consumer has been made, meaning that you've kind of created that subscription between the two. Um, and you get these logs from the Microsoft Windows WMI activity, the operational log under there. So um, something to pay attention to. I know uh, if I believe... I remember this correctly. There is a limitation to that log as far as I don't think it auto rolls. So you got to figure out a, a task to then, you know, forward those events off, but also clear that out. Um, if you want to have continuous monitoring that way. And then the, and then if you look at all the discovery queries that they use for all the reconnaissance, it's all WMI query select star from whatever. Um, so obviously even under the hood, WMI is being used beyond just the back door. Uh, which shows a heavy emphasis on that, which, you know, puts a higher uh, significance there. I even believe there's a sysmod event ID. I don't know off the top of my head for WMI activity that will probably help with this as well. Um, and then the final thing that I thought was was really interesting is they called out a command line string, and I'll try to say it all here, but it's basically the CMD EXE space and then the word choice, and then there are some flags, slash CY, slash N, slash D, y slash t20 and delete slash force uh quiet and then a current process and what what that whole fluff of things that i mentioned means is if you ever like tried to run a program or something from the command line and it gives you options like press yes or press no or there's some default setting if you just press enter it runs through like typically when you install things and stuff like that that's what choice is in cmdexe it lets you set up those different options so that you know programs or things can run different ways um well, this was their unique way to delete itself, which is funny because you mentioned before it already had a way to delete itself. Um, but this was just kind of part of the things that were bundled. Um, and what it basically did was it would run this command and the slash T means 20 seconds later, it was just a time delay. It would just delete itself. The default action was to delete itself. And because they didn't need to rely on that part of the code to really delete itself, they really believe, and they even said this in their report, that it suggests that the, that the shellcode downloader might not be exclusive payload for this chain of attacks. So maybe the downloader is also used for other payloads and other types of attacks. So we talk about behaviors being repeatable. Well, maybe this whole command line string of choice and this delayed delete, maybe that's how they deploy a lot of the different payloads so they can kind of delete their tracks as they go. So something to pay attention to and definitely worth, you know, making content because I, I doubt you're going to see a lot of this in general either. 
So it's good to kind of have in your bag to be hunting for these types of things, especially if you're interested in this type of adversary um, and their their methodology. That's a lot of WMI talk. It is. <laughs> but I appreciate it. <laughs> I mean, whatever they're using, nothing that, or the majority of that, then yeah, go yeah. deep. Um, yeah, so the next one to kind of close us out with, it's another uh, We Live Security article from ESET. And this one focuses on what's called oil rigs, outer space, and juicy mix. Same old rig, new drill pipes. Um, so, you know, they got this name because, yeah, I know, right. All the components and things they named were for things in the solar system and they had some things based on juices or fruits, right? So that's why they kind of named the article this way. Um, but I really wanted to focus on, um, a couple of, you know, they had some sophisticated payloads, but a couple ways to identify their approaches. So oil rigs associated with Iran and their activity, um, and I believe they were targeting Israel as well. Same thing. They were taking over legitimate websites to, to drive some of this. Um, but it all started off with a VBS dropper. So, you know, visual basic scripting uh, is a common way to execute certain things. Um, but one of the ways it gets executed is either by CS or Cscript or Wscript.exe. Um, that's the built executable that runs different scripting languages and windows. And this BBS script was part of the, uh, as a malicious attachment that was a word doc that had basically macros. You enable them, you can run this BBS script. And this is basically the downloader. That's how they get the rest of the payloads, um, to the box, whatever the payloads were, they mentioned a bunch of different payloads, but it, it was a very basic technique where if you can look for this and then you have some insights as far as, you know, other payloads or where they files locations they may drop you know worth looking at but that's that's the one point um i take note but also in this vbs script not only did it pull down the payloads it also creates the schedule task as well for the persistence of those payloads so you should see a combination of the two if you can see a scheduled task that's targeting a specific payload that just got created or you know in a, a weird location as well tied to this vbs script um that's very telling right um the other thing that i i that was interesting to me and this was just interesting because they apparently when analyzing some of the code of the, the payloads there was an unused detection evasion technique um that was there but just not activated uh and that was basically they were doing they were manipulating or using the update proc thread attribute api um and basically we're setting the proc thread attribute mitigation policy to Zero X uh, twenty thousand seven, uh, and that attributes to a specific process to basically um, only basically prevent non Microsoft binaries um, from interjecting or hooking into whatever you know, payloads they're running. And what does that mean? It means that only Microsoft can put hooks into their payloads, and no EDR solution or antivirus solution, and so forth. Which also means that their target set probably isn't running Defender because that would be a Microsoft binary. So I thought that was interesting. It kind of tells you something about um, why they may or may not have used this based on what kind of endpoints they're up against. Um, and then the other thing they did when they landed in the environment was they're really big about collecting um, credentials uh, from browsers. So they had some browser data dumpers. Uh, they had a couple different ones. But one of the things on how their browser data dumpers ran was they used scheduled tasks in order to run the dumpers. Um, and that might be to elevate enough privileges, uh, potentially, but they also mentioned that also let them change the context of the users as well. So if you're running the browser data dumper as a different user, you might get different data from it. Um, so that was an interesting technique. Um, but those are some of the highlights also uh, they they walk the different payloads and what their capabilities are throughout the report. Um, well written. I like I like ESET's reports, uh, both the ones we covered, very detail oriented. Um, but if I was looking to try to initially deal with this type of threat, uh, I would be focused on the the easier things that are easier to identify, um, and that's with the VBS dropper initially, and then kind of walk my way from there from and then that schedule task stuff. 
I will say, um, first of all, I think we said the word juicy way too many times in this episode. <laughs> um, with juicy potato being opposite of the fruits, um, mm-hmm. actually kind of bringing a, I don't know, a gross image. I don't know. Figure out a picture of you. Right, it's like the one at the bottom of the bag that's already like sprouting eyes and crap. Um, I digress, but um, you hit on everything that I was going to talk about, or that I meant, or that I saw of note in this article. Um, anytime there's an there's a section of an article that says unused code, I automatically like think of like, oh man, like this may have been like a, a successful intrusion, like this may have been a uh, a goal. Or not a goal, but like where they're like, hey, let's attack this. Uh, this mm-hmm. might be a proving ground, right? Like, um, what was oh, it? Yeah. Stuxnet had how many zero days in it and how many modules and how much of the code wasn't actually even used. That there was so much of it that everyone, like it would take years for teams to go through and, you know, actually work through the whole process to figure out what it's doing. Like it blows my mind whenever I see that. Um, that, that type of stuff is the, uh, the indicators of, what we call sophisticated or you know, actual APTs or advanced persistent threats, right? Um, so it kind of, hopefully it's not foreshadowing something else mm-hmm. um, because they have all this stuff. And talking about um, scheduled tasks, I was trying to figure out what they looked like um, because it sounded interesting. And ironically, uh, down in the MITRE um, information that they provide, they have the names of the uh, scheduled task names, and they used, uh, for the iDumper, they used IE and then the username. And they used ED and then the username. And CU for the, and the username. So, like, going back to threat hunting and knowing your environment, if you go through, uh, you know, let's take a look at scheduled tasks in your environment, you know, what exists, what runs, um, you know, what is the name of what's the na- standard naming convention? What does that look like? Something like this should stand out right away, right? If you don't include usernames in your task names, then you may be able to catch this. Um, if you have the logging, uh, if you have the logging that's adequate to meet that and actually provide the information, yeah. As well, a, a quick tip on that too, like. Like you said, if you're dumping all this information and you're able to attribute like the number of times you see something, then you the these instances where like this stuff is run, which is considered rare in your environment because they may not be on every machine all at once or whatever, then you could assume that the things that are expected to be there are probably in the twenty to thirty thousand range, and these might be in like the ten to twenty range, right? As far as where you see these and how often they come up. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, that, that just stuck out to me. Um, strange naming convention, uh, probably targeting uh, a strange directory as well. Um, mm-hmm. So, very interesting article. Um, very good find. I think we plugged ESET and We Live Security a lot this time. Um, but, fun articles. Go read them. There's a lot of technical stuff. Yeah, every article this week is really good to put your eyes on. Yeah, no no uh, overviews or trend talk this week. Mm-hmm. I know how that worked out. All right. Well, just a quick reminder um, for some upcoming things to be aware of. You know, there is the Sands Fall Cyber Solutions Fest. This is October 25th to 27th. It's a free three-day virtual event. Uh, we'll be cyborg security will be sponsoring and attending. So you, you can probably get some shout outs there. And also, you know, it should be a really fun event too. So um, definitely check that out. Uh, so with that, I just want to thank everyone for joining our out of the woods threat hunting podcast this week. Uh, looking forward to syncing back up next week. And with that, that closes out our top five threat hunting headlines for the week of September 25th, 2023. Thanks everyone. And happy hunting. Happy hunting. 
Thanks for listening to the Out of the Woods podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast so you never miss an episode. For more information or to connect with Cyborg Security, check us out online at www.cyborgsecurity.com and follow us on social media. We'll see you next time.